Good morning, everybody. I was just um, whispering in Neil's ear the last time I stood up here on this stage. I was getting married. So uh, it's been a long time. Um, thank you. Yeah, to those of you who I know have prayed for us this last week whilst we've been at New Wine, it was really an amazing week, and we head back this afternoon. And um, we're kind of overwhelmed at the moment at... It's a very undeserved favor that we seem to have there. And um, New Wine have put together a DVD that shows what we're doing in the slums, and they've written a song to go with it. And is it possible to play that? Do you have it hooked up or not? If not, it's okay. But I thought it might give you a little bit of a window into what it is that we do before I talk. This is my fault, because I had a whole message prepared It's been a really interesting trip to the UK for us because um, over the years we've come back to England and we've moved around a bit and spoken in churches and and I get quite nervous and so I am an immense preparer. I like to prepare in great detail and I have notes that are in great detail and I had done that for this trip because I knew we were doing a lot of things including new wine and I was very nervous about the whole situation and so I planned and planned and planned and planned and planned and preached to my bedroom wall as I was taught to do when I did time with kings before you preach to an audience you preach to your bedroom wall and and I've got it all down and ready to go and every single place that I've gone the day that I've got up the Lord has said to me no you're not to do that today Every single time, and Neil was joking this morning, saying, but you're not going to do the message you prepared. I'm like, actually, I'm not. Then this morning, the Lord spoke to me and told me to do something different. So I don't know what he's trying to teach me, but I think he's trying to teach me something, which is a bit scary. How are we doing? Is it going to work? Don't worry if it's not. Maybe we'll come back to it later. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. We have some sound. Here we go. I'll step down for a second.
gives you, I guess, a little bit of a window into some of what we're doing in the slums in Kampala. And I was reflecting this week as we were moving around the country, um, on the day that we left the UK to set up home in Africa, we've, we've lived in Uganda five and a half years now. And I was remembering the day that we left the country, we left England and, and flew to Uganda, when, when we decided to move to live in Africa, we had never been before. We hadn't even set foot on the continent of Africa when we really heard the Lord very, very, very clearly tell us to go. So we had absolutely no idea what it was that we were going to. And I was saying to someone the other day, as far as we were concerned, you know, we were going to land in Africa and kind of walk down the plane into some kind of scene from the Lion King or something. We had absolutely no idea what Africa was like. But we knew that God had spoken, and so we packed up our house, we resigned from our jobs, we took our kids out of school, and we bought our airplane tickets, and we went. And we kept asking the Lord before we flew, what is it that you have us to do when we get there? And his response every time was, when you get there, I'll show you. I'm like, well, Lord, I am a preparer, as I've already told you. I'm a planner. I'm like, that's not really very helpful. People would always say, well, what is it you're going to do? When we say, we're moving to Africa. What are you going to go and do? I don't know. You feel kind of stupid. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't know. But when we get there, the Lord's going to show us. And he did. But I was remembering the day that we went to Heathrow, and we had all of our luggage. And it's, it's quite stressful trying to pack up your life and the life of your children into just a few suitcases and then fly and make camp at the other side of the world. And I remember going to the airport and my mum and dad came and Simon's mum and dad came and it was kind of emotional as we were saying goodbye because we didn't really know when we would see each other again and what was going to happen to us in the meantime. 
And so we were having this emotional goodbye and then kind of ferried the children through the security checks. You know all the awful checks you have to go through at, at airports now? It's incredibly stressful. And you have to get all your electronics out your bag. And we had laptops and Playstations and all sorts of things, computers, and we're causing this crazy queue uh, um, security. And anyway, finally, we get ourselves through to the side. We made it to our departure gate. And the children needed the bathroom, so Simon took them off. And I thought, right, I've got about three minutes before they come back, and then we start boarding the plane. It's, it's quite challenging as a mum to remain looking very, very calm and peaceful and serene on the outside so that your children remain calm and peaceful and serene when inside you are just absolutely freaking out. And that's where I was at. I was utterly terrified. And I sat down and I just said, Jesus... I've got about three minutes, and I really need you to speak to me right now, because I am freaking out. And I was expecting him to, to say something kind of warm. Do you know what I mean? Like something a bit cuddly and a bit encouraging, and just to make me feel all safe and secure. But when he spoke to me, he just said this, Nicola, I'm taking you to Africa to teach you how to love. And my instant response was, what? What do you mean? You're taking me to Africa to teach me how to love. This seems to me, Jesus, a very extreme, radical thing to do, to require of me, to take me somewhere, to teach me to do something that I don't think I'm that bad at anyway. Now, are you sure? Is this really what you want to do? And he's like, no, I'm taking you to Africa to teach you how to love. So I was questioning the Lord and I was seeing the children coming back from the bathroom, and he just said to me, I tell you what, sweetheart, when you get to Africa, open your Bible, find a quiet place, open your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians 13, read the definition of love that you will find there, use it as your measuring stick, you know, measure yourself against it, and then come back to me, and we'll talk again. So I said, okay, Lord. So we went to Africa, set up our home. A few days later, I went into our garden. We have a beautiful garden. And I went and sat in the garden. I opened up my Bible, and, and I read this. I'd read this many times before, just to say. We all have. It's the kind of classic wedding scripture. But I read this, and it was like I was reading it for the first time. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And as I read it, it was like reading it for the first time, and it was almost like it winded me. And I just began to cry, and I was like, oh God, I, I fall so short in every way of how you define love to be. And for me and, and for Simon, I think the last five and a half years of living in Africa really has been a journey into understanding love and what love really truly is. And I guess having our old mindsets of what we thought love to be completely broken down and having the Lord rebuild a whole new picture of what love is. And, and I have come to discover that love is so much more powerful 
It's so much more life-transforming and rescuing and hope-bringing than I had ever, ever understood love to be. It, it's, I was saying to someone, it's like it's, it was so altogether other than anything I ever really knew it was. And it feels like we've been journeying this journey into love for five years, but we're still right at the very, very beginning of it, and we still have so much to learn. I think that the Lord gives us two very clear scriptures with regards to love. There are many, many scriptures with regards to love, but I think there are two very clear commands. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with everything that you are, with everything that you have, every fiber of your being, just love him and love him and love him and love him because he's so worthy and he's so beautiful and he's so wonderful and he's so glorious and he's so full of grace and kindness and majesty and splendor and he's just so worthy of all of your love and all of your affection and all of your attention there is no one as worthy of it as Jesus he's just so utterly worthy and we are called to love him with complete abandon Just love him and love him and love him. And I was talking to the Lord the other day and I was saying it it feels like it's such a joy and it's such a privilege to love you, Jesus. I don't understand how the most important thing I could ever do with my life could be so fantastic. It's like it's it's a joy to love him. It's not difficult to love Jesus. He's just so worthy of it. But that's command number one. There's also another one because it goes on to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes that second one is a little bit harder. It's just a bit more tricky. And when Jesus says neighbor, he doesn't actually mean the person who lives in the house next door to you. You understand that? Every single person who comes in front of you every moment of the day, love them. Just love them. Well, what about doesn't matter? Love them. What about doesn't matter? Just love them. Love, love, love. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. This is, um, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. And I, and I do love this story. I often speak on this story. And you can read it yourselves maybe later on today for the sake of time I'm going to give you my version it is very biblical just to be clear but I'm just going to summarize it for you the story is about this guy who sets out one morning on a walk and he's just doing normal life he wakes up everything is normal he sets out from his house and off he goes expecting to have another normal day and then suddenly everything goes very very wrong for him He's jumped on by a band of thieves and robbers. They beat him up. They strip him of everything. They take all of his possessions and they toss him into the ditch and they leave him for dead at the side of the road. So here you have this guy who was just fine. Everything was normal. And then in an instant, it's like his whole life has changed and suddenly he's desperate and broken and hurting and dying in a ditch at the side of the road, hoping that someone is going to walk past and help him. And it says that the first person to arrive on this scene is a priest. And the priest 
would have been known as a very religious man. He would have worn all the right religious clothes, known all the right religious things to say, been seen in all the right religious places. He was a very religious man. But it says, as he walked down the road and he saw the hurting, dying, desperate, broken man in the ditch, needing someone to help him, it says he crosses to the other side of the road and he goes about his way. It wasn't that he just ignored him and carried on. He got as far away from him as he possibly could and he went about his way. And then comes a Levite and the Levite would also have been known as a very religious man. He would have had the right religious clothes, he would have taught the right religious talk, been seen in all the right religious places. But it says, when he saw the hurting, desperate, broken, dying man in the ditch at the side of the road, he too crossed the other side and went about his way. Then comes a Samaritan man. The Samaritan man would not have been known as a religious man. He certainly wouldn't have worn all the right religious things, been seen in the right religious places. In fact, in, 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 the, in the time, he was seen as an outcast of society, a reject. He was unclean and unacceptable. And he walks down the road. But it says when he sees the hurting, dying, desperate, broken man in the ditch at the side of the road, he stops. He bends over. He tends this guy's wounds. He puts him on the back of his donkey and he takes him somewhere to get help. And when Jesus finishes telling this story, he turns to the crowd who are listening and he says, now listen to me. You go and do likewise. You go and be like the Samaritan man. You go and live. You go and love like he did. James 1.27 says, Pure and genuine religion, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father is to care for the orphan and the widow in her distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Pure and genuine religion is not just about what church you go to or what conferences you attend or whether you go to New Wine or New Day or Soul Survivor or, or what songs you have on your iPod or what Twitter feeds you follow. None of those things are bad. All of those things are really, really, really good. But pure and genuine religion doesn't stop there. It goes on beyond that. You see, if, if all I do is spend time with Jesus for myself and receive from him for myself and keep what he gives to me for myself but never give it away to other people, what does that make me? What does it make me? I think it makes me no better than the priest and the Levite in that story. And I absolutely believe now more than I ever, ever have done that it is by grace that we have been saved. Freely, 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 freely we have received. 
You have not received your salvation. You have not received the love of Jesus because of anything that you have done. It's because of what he has done. It is a free gift that has been given to you. And freely we have received. And so freely now we have to go and give. We receive and we give. That's what the Bible says. And I, I believe with every fiber of my being that God did not create his church, his people, to be people of passivity and inactivity. But quite the opposite. He created us to be people full of energy and passion and zeal and hope and vision and love. And that he has called us to take the love that he has given to us and take it into a world of darkness and a world of pain and just release it to everyone and anyone that we meet. And then we get to watch and see what love does. Because love is powerful. You know, love, I've been thinking about it so much. Like my, the book that I wrote was all about, it's called My Journey Into Love because it really is that and I've been learning about love for, for over five years, I guess, in quite an intense way and quite a dramatic journey. But love is not just a theory. It's not just a theology, and it is not just an emotion. Love is so much more than that. Love is a person. His name is Jesus. Love is powerful. Love is transformational. And we are called to be carriers of his love, to be ambassadors of love, not in just what we think and what we say, but in how we live and what we do. Christy Wimber was saying this week, love is not just a doctrine. It has to become an experience both for you and the people who are around you. And I wrote it down quickly because I was like, brilliant, I love that. I want to tell you a story. We met a lady <clears throat> in Chinawataka slum. Her name was Mummy Sharifa. She was raising her children by herself, and, and we can't remember whether it was because her husband had died or whether she was a second or a third wife. It's very possible he'd died because the, the slum that she lives in is known as an AIDS slum. And she was HIV positive. But her husband had, had, was gone, and she was raising her children by herself, and she had no money to pay her rent. She hadn't paid her rent for a few months. Her rent for her slum house, it's just like one room mud house, was 10,000 shillings a month, which is about £2.20. I'm looking at Tabby. That's about £2.20, isn't it, darling? Yeah. £2.20 a month. She hadn't paid it for months because she didn't have the money. So the landlord came, and rather than throwing her out, took the roof off of her house. And we have monsoon rainstorms that are very scary. The slum houses can flood from your feet to your shoulders in about 30 minutes. And so she was very frightened. The rains were coming. He, were, he, he lived in the little mud house that was joining hers. And so one night, he knocked a hole between his house and her house so he could have access to her whenever he wanted to do whatever he wanted in payment for her house. And she was very frightened. She had a little girl called Sharifa who was dying. She was dying of malnutrition 
And mummy knew that she was dying. And she was desperate, and she was frightened, and she just wanted out. So she went to the witch doctor, and she bought the correct herbs that she needed to make poison, a drink of poison, so that she could kill both herself and her children that evening. She went home, she lit her little charcoal stove, and, and she, burnt, she boiled up the drink. When the poison drink was ready, she realized that two of her children weren't in the house, and Sharifa was, because she was too sick to move. But she was said... <laughs> I was, I was interviewing her a few weeks before we came here because I wanted to get her story right. She said, as I left the house to find my children, to bring them in to give them poison, one of your team members was walking into my house and we collided with each other and I fell backwards and this potion spilled all over the floor. Yes. And I love it. I said to Julie, who was the girl who was, who was the Uganda member of staff, why did you go to Mama Sharifa's that day? And she said, I don't know. I was walking through Chinuataka and I was planning to go this way, but I just felt Holy Spirit go, go to Mama Sharifa's now. And she said, so Mama Sharifa said that we collided in the poison spilt on the floor. And so Julie recognized the smell and was like, Mummy, what are you doing? And Mummy poured out her pain. So we took Mummy and Sharifa to a feeding center. When children are very, very malnourished, you have to reintroduce them to food. You can't just give them food. It would kill them. So we took them to a feeding center. We got um, Sharifa well. We gave Mummy training on how to create a nutritious meal out of basically no money at all and grow bag gardens and all that kind of stuff. And life was looking well. Mummy had hope again. She gave her life to Jesus, and it was, it was brilliant. And then Sharifa got sick. Like, oh, you're joking. She came down with TB, which is, you know, common in the slums. So Sharifa's sick with TB. Mummy's rushed her to the hospital. We get a phone call saying, you've got to come. The doctor said that Sharifa's not going to make it through the night. We jump in the car. We head to the hospital. Sharifa's there. She's hooked up to oxygen and all sorts of other things. And Mummy sat in the waiting room just praying and praying and praying. And she said, no, Sharifa is not going to die. Jesus has saved her once. He can save her again. And so she just kept on praying. The doctor got very annoyed with her because, you know, she was quite loud and came out to her and said, be quiet. In fact, he said, stop it, is what he said. And she said to him, I will not stop it. <laughs> she's quite strong. She's brilliant. I will not stop it. She said, he said, your daughter is going to die. And she said, you wait. Tomorrow morning, you're going to come into work and she's going to be off oxygen and she's going to be fine. And he laughed and walked away. The next morning he came into work, there was Sharifa off oxygen, sat up really, really well. It was an amazing miracle. Mummy got so excited. <laughs> She's so great. She was so excited. She starts praying for everyone in the hospital. And people start getting healed. Not everyone she prayed for, but people were getting healed. And they were, they were leaving. And in Uganda, there is no free medical care. When you're right at the hospital, you have to have the money in your hand to pay for your consultation and to pay for your treatment. So all these people were walking out the doors, and the doctors are just seeing money disappear. And they're all getting cross, and so she was asked to leave. So she came home. Sharifa took six months for TB meds, and she was fine. Great testimony, but it gets even better than that. Mummy comes to our discipleship, which we run in the slums every week. We run discipleship classes for people who have been recently saved. And, and Mummy was coming, and we were teaching on Lazarus. You know the story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And at the end of it, she stood up, and she said, Well, if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, then he can heal me of AIDS. I was like, Yes. <laughs> Amen. Oh, my. That's a big one. But Mummy was determined, so she began to fast and pray. Just by herself, she fasted and she prayed and she fasted and she prayed and she fasted and she prayed. She'd had many, many positive 
uh, HIV tests. She'd been on ARVs for many years. Three weeks later, she went to a lo our local AIDS clinic, had an AIDS test, and it was negative. Isn't that amazing? And when I sat with her, because she just keeps going to get retested, I said, Mommy, how many have you, AIDS tests have you had now? She said, three, and all of them were negative. Isn't that amazing? I just think it's incredible. But the thing is, the point I want to make from it is when we met her that day, it was a tiny whisper from the Holy Spirit to say, go to Mummy Sharifa's house. Tiny whisper. And then taking Mummy and Sharifa to a feeding clinic was a tiny act of love. It was free. The feeding clinic is free. It didn't even cost us any money. We just put her in a car and we took her there and left her there. It was a tiny, tiny act of love. But it began this series of events that transformed her life. You see, love, Mother Teresa used to say, Mother, love, in order to be genuine, does not have to be extravagant. She used to say, we don't need extravagant gestures of love. We just need love that doesn't get tired. You see, a theology of love doesn't change very much, but a simple act of love can change everything for that person. Our, our faith has to become our lifestyle, and what we say has to become what we do, and what we believe has to turn into how we live. Otherwise, we're in danger of living lives that are nothing more, really, than full of emotional sentiment. It's just true. 1 John 3 says this, This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for others and not just be out for ourselves. If you see a brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. It's strong, isn't it? My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we will know we're truly living in God's reality. You know, in the slums of Uganda, love looks like food to people who are hungry. It looks like medicine to people who are sick. It looks like clothes to people who have nothing to wear. Water to people who have nothing to drink. It's very simple. But that's what it looks like there, where I live. But what does it look like here, where you live? What does love look like to the man on the train in the business suit or the mum in the school gate waiting to pick up her child? What does it look like to your elderly next-door neighbour? What does it look like to the little one who's come to your home for a play date? I don't know, but I can absolutely guarantee you it will look like something. It will look like something. And just because you don't live where I live and work where I work doesn't mean that the need for love is any less real, or actually the pain that people feel any less deep. It's just different. I say to my team all the time, poverty, poverty wears many different faces. And I think the poverty of loneliness, the poverty of fear, the poverty of anxiety, the poverty of divorce, those pains, those poverties are as painful, if not more so, than the person who has nothing to eat. 
And the world is full of hurting people. It's just full of them. You only have to walk out the doors to see them. It may be dressed in a disguise, but you pull back the disguise and, and it's there. It's just there. There is pain everywhere. And we have the answer for it because we have love. And in the slums, we, we've seen the love of Jesus do many, many things. We've seen mummies healed from AIDS. We've seen the blind see. We've seen the lame walk. We've seen children who should be dead live. And I love it. We've seen witch doctors one to Jesus. We've seen whole villages one in a day. We've seen Jesus do amazing things because it is him who does it, not us. We have no ability in ourselves to do any of that. It's only Jesus who can do it. We have seen the love of Jesus do incredible things. But for me, I think probably the most profound and extraordinary experience of love that I've ever seen that changed me the most was when I met a little girl called Aisha. And Aisha was living in Banda Slum. Banda Slum is our biggest slum that we work into. It's not the biggest one in the city, but it's the biggest one that we work into. They say that there's a million people who live there. And, um, and it's a very, very desperate place. It's a very violent place, actually. More violent than the other ones. And we met Mummy Aisha and Daddy Aisha and Aisha. And they're a Muslim family. And uh, they're extremely poor. One day we had a phone call to say that Aisha was sick. So we went to the slum and picked her up. She was sick. She too was dying, and she too was dying from malnutrition. And, and I, I find the fact that children still die because they're hungry very difficult to get my head around in a world that is full of diet fads where people are throwing food away because they don't trust themselves not to eat it. And I hold children every day who die because they're hungry. And that's not okay. It's not okay. And we met um, little Aisha, and she was dying because they didn't have any food. And we took them to the hospital, and Mummy had actually given birth about three days before to another baby, and Mummy had mastitis. She had an infection in her chest, and she was quite unwell. And she'd left, which is common practice, blows my mind, but it's common practice. She'd left the baby at home on its own in the slum house, and we'd gone to the hospital with Aisha. And the doctors were, were stabilizing Aisha and hooking her up to all sorts of medicines and, and said to us, you know, if you can encourage mommy to go home, we think that would be the right thing. She needs to rest and she needs to be with her baby. She needs to feed her baby. She needs to keep her milk moving. Otherwise, we're going to have bigger problems down the road. And we'll, we'll look after Aisha. So half of our team took mommy home and the other half stayed with Aisha. And uh, my friend Anna was there and she said she was sat in the waiting room. We don't have hospitals like you, we have here, but this was a clinic. She was sat in the waiting room, and like she could see Aisha being worked on in the little room around the corner. And she said, I didn't know what to do, so I just started to worship. Very quietly under her breath, she began to sing. And then two Ugandan women who were sitting around the corner joined in with her. And then the whole waiting room just began to worship together. Isn't that extraordinary? 
And they all just worshipped together in this waiting room whilst waiting to see what's going to happen with Aisha. The next day, we went to the slum, picked up mummy and the newborn baby. We got in the car and we drove towards the hospital and our phone rang and it was the hospital to say that Aisha had died. And we, we were devastated. Mummy was just distraught. And so we went to the hospital and we collected her little body and we took her back to the slum and we helped lay her out. And we mourned for the day, we sat with, for, the, with the day, for the day with the family. You see, you have to walk life with people in every moment. We can't just decide that we're going to love people and walk with them when things are going well. In the high moments of life and in the great joys, you have to walk life with people whatever You have to walk life with them in the highs and you walk life with them in the lows. You walk with them in times of joy and you walk with them in times of sorrow. You sit in their homes and you hold their hands when they're hurting, when they're frightened, when they're scared and when their children die. Because that's what love does. It just just stays. It perseveres. It remains. When children are sick, we pray for them. Always. It's the first thing we do. If, if they're not healed, we get them medicine. If they die, we pray for them to be raised from the dead. And if they're not, we buy the coffin and we help dig the hole to put their body in. And then we sit with the family and we weep with them because that's what love does. That's what love does. Love is not what the merchandising and the media companies want you to think that it is. Love is not some fluffy emotion that's covered in confetti and sparkles and champagne. Love is hard work. Love is commitment. Love is tough. Love hurts sometimes. But it has never once, in my experience, not been worth it. It might have been a journey, but it's never once not been worth it. Not long after we buried Aisha, Daddy lost his job. They were thrown out of their house, and they were living on the street, and they didn't have anything. And we were desperate for them, but we didn't know what to do. And we were at our office, and our phone rang, and it was Mummy saying, can you come? I need to see you. So we jumped in the car, and we went And when we got there, she said, I need to tell you something. I had a dream last night. And in my dream, Aisha came to me. And she had this long flowing dress on. And she was stood and behind her was this huge man. He was huge. And he did not take his eyes off of Aisha. He was just watching her. And Aisha spoke to me. And she said, Mummy... Receive comfort. Do not mourn. I am with Jesus. You need to follow him. And so she said, please tell me about him. So we sat there and we told her about Jesus and she gave her life to him. It's an extraordinary moment. Daddy was away. He'd he'd gone away to try and get some work. He came home, knew nothing of what had happened with Mummy Aisha, walked into the house, said, Mommy, you need to sit down. We need to talk. Something really strange has happened to me. 
A few nights ago, I had a dream, and in this dream, Aisha came to me, and she was wearing this long white dress, and there was this huge man standing behind her, and she said, Daddy, do not mourn, receive comfort. I am with Jesus. You need to follow him. And he said to Mommy, we need to find out who Jesus is. So she said, well, I can tell you. She told him, and she led her husband to Jesus, just the two of them in their little slum house. Amazing. And I sat with her just before we came here. Again, I was interviewing her and, and asking her about her story. And, and I said to her, Mummy, help me understand. Because if, if we had prayed for Aisha and she had been healed and you gave your life to Jesus, I would understand. Or when Aisha had died, if we had prayed and she had been raised from the dead, I would have understood that. But none of those things happened. Yet still you decided to follow him. Why? And it was a genuine question for me. And she looked at me in her very broken English. She said, through Aisha's death, I saw love. And I was just like, what? <laughs> she said, through Aisha's death, I saw Jesus. So I said, how? <laughs> how? And she said, well, through you. Not me. I wasn't there. It was one of my team members. The way you loved us the way you carried her body, the way you buried her body, the way you sat and wept with us, I saw love. I saw Jesus. And she is the most thankful, beautiful, happy, joy-filled, light-filled woman that I have ever had the privilege of calling my friend. She's just, she's incredible. And as I was sat with her that afternoon, that scripture was going round and round and round in my head. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You see, love is, most, is powerful enough to penetrate even into the most darkest moments of our life. There is no darkness too powerful for love. Love will pierce any darkness. It is stronger than any strategy of the enemy. It is more powerful than any plan that hell has against you. Love will always be victorious. Love will always conquer. Love will always win because love never fails you. It will not fail you. His love cannot fail you. It can't. It's impossible because failure is not part of who he is. Love will always win. And we're called to be carriers of that love. And we have a song that we sing in Uganda called Bamo Yute Yesu. Is that right? Am I saying it right? Um, Bam, this is Tabby. She lives in our village. She's gorgeous. Bamo Yute Yesu, Bamo Yute Yesu, Bamo Yute Yesu, Atalemwa. Yeah? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He never fails. That's it. It's my favorite song ever. And we sing it all the time. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He never fails. And then it goes on. He never fails, Jesus. He never fails. He never fails, Jesus. He never fails. And when times get really, really hard, you know what? We just sing it even more. I'm just going to sing it even louder. It was when we've had a really hard time in our family the last two years, and I had this song, and I just held on to it. His name is Jesus. He will never fail me. All my family, 
Whatever darkness you walk through, whatever pain you walk through, whatever you experience around and about you, his love will never fail you. And it will never fail those who you give it to either. There's another song that we sing. And it just says, Only you, Jesus. Only you. That's it. That's the song. Only you, Jesus. Only you. Only you, Jesus. Only you. It's only you, Jesus. It's only your love, your grace, your mercy that will get us through. That will be rescue. That will be transformation. It's just you, Jesus. To be carriers and releases of his love will cost you at times. And there will be moments in your life like the Sharifa moments of great victory and great joy. And there will be moments like the Aishas of deep pain and deep sorrow. But we are still called to carry love, to carry love, to receive love, and then just to give it away. That's what we're called to do.